everybody. Welcome to Bone to Pick. I am Michael Davis, and I am so pleased to have our guest this month, the great Alan Ferber. Uh, he is a multi-Grammy-nominated composer, trombonist, and band leader. Uh, certainly one of the most in-demand trombone players in New York and on the international jazz scene. He has just released his eighth CD as a leader uh, entitled Jigsaw, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that incredible project. Uh, he has appeared on the Downbeat International Critics Poll, the Reader's Poll. Uh, his previous CDs has been nominated for Grammy Awards. He received a four-star review from Downbeat. Uh, also, uh, Downbeat named his uh, CD one of the best CDs of the year. Uh, his discography is extremely impressive, as you might imagine, includes working with artists from Esperanza Spaulding, Ted Nash, Miguel Zenon, Lee Conant, Sufjan Stevens, The National, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, just to name a few. Uh, he's currently on the faculty at New York University, um, and he is a staunch Golden State Warrior fan, mm -hmm. which I'm uh, pleased to share that uh, passion with him. I assume that you s struggled through the decades like oh, I God. did of the, uh, oh. the dark ages. But, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I have been a fan of Alan's for, for many, many years now, and, I, and I, in researching for this uh, interview, I found a quote that I thought really described it best. Uh, among the many great reviews he has of his projects, the Wall Street Journal described his music as somehow both old school and cutting edge. And I thought that was really a, a great way to describe it, both both from uh, as a composer and as a trombone player. Just a wonderful musician. And uh, without further ado, Alan, thanks so much for taking time to Thank come over to New City today. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. Me too. Let's jump in and talk about, reference the Bay Area, let's talk about you uh, Growing up in the Bay Area and Oakland, and maybe some of the, uh, um, you know, your early influences, your teachers who made an impact on you from uh, from the early ages. Well, I I grew up in uh, a small. I was born in Oakland, but grew up in a small town called Moraga, which is just a sleepy little town. Though it's nestled amongst a lot of larger, you know, culturally vibrant vibrant areas like Berkeley and San Francisco, Oakland. So I had a very nurturing upbringing in this small community but um certainly my my parents and my mother actually probably get into it uh comes from a entertainment background my grandmother my great-grandmother oh, wow. so um there was always a a priority for my parents to to get me uh in front of live performance mm -hmm. uh surrounded with music surrounded by music um so uh, you know, I, I grew up also in the, in the Bay Area, which is, which is also traditionally known as um, an area that has put a high priority on music education. Sure. Yeah. And my high school provided a lot of opportunities for me. And, you know, around the area, too, I was just able to access a lot of, a lot of things, a lot of performance opportunities, jazz camps like the Stanford Jazz Workshop, which was my first jazz camp. Mm -hmm. um, a workshop that the Eastman School of Music put together, uh, Fred Sturm specifically in Monterey, which I did for several years. So it was just a great place to grow up. And uh, I, I would really, I mean, probably the most important first influence in terms of trombone, I mean, of course, first influence for me besides my parents, but for trombone specifically was uh, a Bay Area trombonist he still lives there and he's still very in demand uh dean hubbard mm -hmm. who for me was he was my first teacher he got me started on my first routines you know he, he established sort of a daily routine for me he told me what that even means 
in terms of playing the trombone that got me started on the, on the Schlossberg books and the Marsteller books. Yeah. All the things that, you know, the fundamental things that, that I think every good teacher, particularly with a new student, helps to set up. So Dean and Dean got me also exposed to jazz trombone. Um, I specifically remember, and it's, it's so strange when I think about our first lesson because it was because it was such a, a moment. We were doing all these little rote exercises, and at the end, I said, um, "Excuse me, Mr. Hubbard, could, would you mind uh, if could we play a little jazz? I, I don't, you know, I don't know much about it, but I'd love to, I'd love to hear you play a little bit." So he put on a Jamie Ebersold, and he, he, it starts to play. It's like you know, nothing but the blues. I think it's Volume Two or something. Right, right. It's an F blues. And he starts to play a solo, and, uh, and meanwhile, I've got my tape recorder. I'm recording the lesson, and he starts to play a solo. And at that moment, I re I at that moment, for some reason, I specifically remember what the room smelled like. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I remember every little detail. It was one of those moments, you know, sometimes when you have these moments in your life where, where something really life-changing is occurring in that moment, you... The smell, the everything, you know, the way the fluorescent lights were buzzing. I remember, like, the the band trophies behind him. It was, like, it was so strange. I remember that so specifically, his khaki pants and his cologne. <laughs> <laughs> Starts playing this solo, and I was like, what is that? That's incredible. And, of course, I just hacked my way through it. <laughs> and I went home and and wore that tape out. I still have it. And uh, that's really was my the first solo I ever learned. Mm. It was such a, a big moment for me in terms of starting my passion for the trombone. Wow, that is amazing. What a story. You obviously <laughs> have the passion. It's like uh, to have all that in your uh, memories. That's fantastic. Well, thanks for sharing that, Alan. Let's talk a little bit about your time at UCLA. I know you went from, from the Bay Area down to UCLA. Great program. Obviously, many great teachers in Los Angeles and great influences. <clears throat> Maybe you could share some of your memories of that time uh, and, and studying there. Yeah, I you know UCLA was a, in retrospect a great place for me to to go to college. I didn't you know as most high schoolers going out, I I didn't really know what I was doing, nor did I have a huge amount of clarity in terms of what I wanted to to study. Um, but I auditioned down there and I got in through the music program um, on a scholarship, which was obviously helpful, um, and. I think for me it was good. It wasn't too far from from where I grew up, but it was a, obviously it was enough. It was five and a half hours away. Uh, it was it was enough of a distance where I could really establish uh, becoming an individual or, or becoming self sufficient without my parents just being around mm -hmm. all the time. It also did help um, that I I was there with my brother. I have a twin brother who's a drummer, professional drummer now, and a very successful one who I grew up with learning how to play this music together. And uh, so we, we went down to L.A. together, and, and um, we happened to hit it at a very good time because in the department at that time were people that I, I still have a lot of musical associations with, like um, uh, there, there was a trumpet player named John DeVersa there. Sure. Who was yeah. in my class. He's now the head of the department at the University of Miami. And uh, he really helped me out, took me under his wing. Um, these people all came from really musical families. So they, their father, you know, John's father, Jay, was a, 
was one of the busier studio tr trumpet players in L.A. for many, many years. Sure, yeah. Uh, a guy named jo Justin Morell is a guitarist. His, his dad, John Morell, was a very prominent guitar, or is, um, but he, you know, he played with Miles Davis. Mm. He, did, he also did a lot of studio work. Um, Gretchen Parlato was in my class. She's a, a very uh, successful singer now, a, a bass player named Todd Sikafus. I mean, I, I could go on and on, but there, in addition to that, there were faculty members that were also really nurturing. Kenny Burrell led the program, and it was a new program. So, there were, you know, it was like there were some things they were working out. But they were all invested in, in giving us opportunities. I mean, I had a class with Billy Higgins mm. where what that essentially consisted of was us showing up and playing mostly monk tunes with Billy Higgins. <laughs> I mean, it's like how... And he didn't say much either. He would just smile. He's like, ah, you know. And uh, he, would, he would either play, we'd either play monk tunes or Brazilian tunes or um, his own. Uh, I'm sorry. He would encourage us to bring in tunes. And I wasn't oh. writing music at that point, but some of the other guys were. And I did actually, that was the first time I ever wrote a tune um, because, you know, I wanted to, I mean, he was encouraging it, so why not? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, 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 and while at UCLA, I studied trombone with a, another huge, my second huge mentor, Bill Booth, mm -hmm. who I studied with for four years, you know, on a weekly basis. Bill really, you know, and Bill is, you know, at that time and still now is one of the busiest studio trombone players, as you know, in, in sure. Los Angeles. Yeah. And he, I mean, he was just so particular and demanding without being belligerent, you know. <laughs> but he was, I mean, when you didn't do your work, you know, I, I remember coming in, I had, a, I had a large workload of assignments to do. I didn't get a chance to practice my Roshu enough, and I'd come and basically try to sight read it in front of him. And I just remember he'd just be sitting, he'd always like sit at a distance, and, and he'd be like, hmm, what, what else do you have? <laughs> Oh boy! I know. I think it's just I was, demoralizing. You know, the, the great teachers. I think they really have that knack, right, for just shooting you down without having to do it and beating you over the head. Oh, it's just it's like just a simple so sentence, you know. Made me feel so horrible. <laughs> what else do you? Have? I mean, I remember seeing. I remember seeing people coming out of their lessons. I mean, literally crying, um, because not because he would do anything like, uh, you know, inappropriate. It was just because he had such a. He, was, he cared so much about the music and about your development as a musician that if you didn't do the work, he would, yeah. he would let you know in his way. And uh, I, I, I appreciated that. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Understandable, too. And, and for those of you who don't know, Bill Booth, like Alan just said, he's one of the top call motion picture and studio guys in Los Angeles. And when you hear him play with the, the, the uh, level of uh, precision that he plays with, you can understand why that uh, would be what he wants to pass on to his students. And, uh, very cool to hear about the program at UCLA at that time. I know I've, I've always felt that, that, that uh, you know, the greatness of a school is the other students that you're around. Of course, the faculty is very important, but, uh, but really, like, uh, being around other students at that level, that's, that's a very cool thing. Yeah. Um, let's jump forward and talk a little bit about your early years in your career in Los Angeles. I know you mentioned you, you, you started your career. You're so known for your time in New York, obviously, now many years later. But... Maybe talk about those those first um, few years in Los Angeles, and then then 
been, been making the jump to New York and what made you come out here? Yeah, it was, I think one of the reasons why LA was a good place for me at that time was that the, when I graduated, which was in uh, 97, uh, that was kind of the beginning of this revi the swing revival. Um, it started with a, I think, basically it was a combination of events, but there were there was an enormous amount of work mm. for um, live musicians, and particularly for big bands, uh, because there was a movie called Swingers that, that came out around that time. It was hugely popular, and then a number of swing bands, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy and Brian Setzer Orchestra, sure. which, is, <laughs> which is a band that I eventually actually, that was my first big touring gig. Um, that when I when I graduated, um, there was work, so I, I started playing with a little swing band, and then you know I started playing around a little bit, and got involved with some of the more busier swing bands. And one of them was uh, led by a guy named Bill Elliott, who did a lot of film and TV scoring, and and uh, and also was just an incredible writer. So through I, I was uh, recommended to play in Bill Elliott's band, and through Bill's band, I met a lot of the the active uh, sort of studio-oriented players in L.A. that really took me under their wing and helped me out. People like Alex Isles and Alan Kaplan, Charlie Morillis, Bruce Otto. I mean, these guys were r extraordinarily supportive. Mm. Charlie Loper. I mean, they mm -hmm. would all play in this band, and for me fresh out of college to come in i mean there wasn't there wasn't a lot of touring big band work at that time the, the way there was maybe even just 15 20 years earlier that was my way of cutting my teeth in in, in a real environment you know in front of an audience with these heavy players and just to sit in a section with those guys and hear them play was was incredible they got me involved in this hoyt's garage scene where i would go over and play um play these pieces would rotate around the room and then so we'd have to go we'd have to conduct a little bit and then we'd play you know every trombone part and here i'm just looking around like man they're just playing so beautifully and um i think through that 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 kind of got me hooked up a little bit with with those guys and uh at the same time the brian I was mentioned the brian Setzer orchestra there's a, a great trombone player there Named George McMullen, who recommended me through a, just a random rehearsal I did at the Musicians Union. Um, I had like a 12-bar blues solo, and you know I was playing with these guys. And he called me that night. He asked me, "Do you want to essentially sort of audition slash join this band?" Um, it was a gig on the VH1 Fashion Awards, so it wasn't really a rehearsal. It was like, mm -hmm. "This is actually a gig, and there's horn moves, but we're not going to be able to go through them. But you're going to be taping and." Like what? I'm going right. They're going left. <laughs> but I did that gig, and then they asked me to go on tour, and I ended up touring with them for for a year, and nice. that was my first real. You know that that's the first time I felt like, wow, I'm I'm a professional musician now. I mm -hmm. guess I. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> that's really cool. Um, yeah, I know playing with those guys. I'm sure Alex and Charlie and and uh, all of them out there. That's. Uh, Tremendous. So as things were going so well for you in Los Angeles, it'd be interesting to uh, just hear your thoughts about what, what you know, motivated you to move out to New York. It's always a scary thing when things are going pretty well and then like uh, to, to have the uh, courage to make a move to New York. Uh, what, what were your uh, memories and thoughts of what was going on in your life at that time? Yeah. I mean, I, 
kind of an irresponsible decision, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't really have much of a plan. Um, I wasn't going to school in New York. I mean, I didn't know anybody. I knew one person, I should say. And, uh, you know, and I didn't really even know him. Um, he was a, f a mutual friend of my brother's who I had happened to pick up the phone one day. He, had been, he was calling my brother for a gig, and, and, I, and I picked up the phone. And, hey, Matt. Uh, he said, hey, you must be Alan's brother. And I said, oh, yeah, I've heard, you know, I, I know you. I mean, I know of you and through my brother, and it's so nice to hook up here by phone. He's like, oh, yeah, man, have you ever thought about moving to New York? I live in New York. Um, I said, well, yeah, I think about it all the time. I mean, all my, it seems like all, most of my favorite records are coming out of New York. I'm, you know, obsessed with jazz and particularly sort of like contemporary modern jazz at that time, especially. Um, and he, he, he said, well, I have this apartment that's opening up in my building and wow. it's yours if you want it. And, and that was always the thing that, that, that would keep me from moving because not only from basically not having any semblance of a plan, also like the prospect of finding a place to live always freaked me out. Sure, yeah. And then it just fell into my lap, and I was gonna—I was actually doing a, a transatlantic like cruise two weeks later with Les Brown and the Band of Renown. <laughs> <laughs> we're starting in England, and then we were gonna dock in New York for eight hours, and then head down to to Florida. And I said, well, I'm gonna be in. In New York, in a couple of weeks, maybe I can. Uh, I mean, for a few hours, maybe I can come and get the keys. Check it. Yeah. I mean, not even. I'll check it out, but yes, I'll take it. Basically, <laughs> is what I said. I was so excited. Where was the apartment? It was. It was a great location. It was on West Nineteenth Street between Fifth and Sixth. Oh wow! But yeah. I mean, the thing should have been condemned. It was like. Okay. I mean, it was. I mean, I, I think a guy had just died in there. You know, <laughs> like it was really yeah. bizarre. <laughs> And it was it was a it was a bunch of these tiny I mean literally I could I could do this I I remember doing this the walls I could touch the walls and uh, it was just a, it was essentially like a large closet the guy before me had painted it dark blue so it felt smaller than <laughs> even uh, it was just um, not gonna I mean it was not gonna work but yeah. there was a sink in the corner there wasn't even a kitchen I yeah. mean, it was just a room there was like a shared it was you know hot pot kind of thing shared yeah. bathroom. So I saw this place and I was like, oh my God, what am, I, what am I thinking here? And I was living in a pretty comfortable situation in L.A. Uh, of course, the weather's always nice. It's just, you know, it's hard, hard to leave. But that gave me the excuse to leave. I moved to New York. I moved into that place, um, but literally probably for a week. And I crashed with this guy, with Matt Otto. He's a mm. saxophone player in his kitchen. He had a large kitchen. Slept in his kitchen for a couple weeks while they found a an apartment in his building in Brooklyn, which was, which was a nice, you know, bigger apartment. Mm -hmm. Still had its issues, of course, as most New York City apartments right. do. But, uh, it, you know, it got me here, and uh, I'm glad it did. Yeah, so are we. Um, let's talk a little bit about your non-ed and your big band and how you got those started. I want to talk a lot about your, your latest project, Jigsaw, which is phenomenal. For those of you who have not heard it yet, get it today it's really uh, fantastic but uh one of the things that i've always admired about your you is is your commitment to being a creative musician and i really i, I for people who go down that road i just have the most uh, utmost respect and admiration um for yourself what was it like you know 
starting your own groups, obviously at this point, I'm sure you were writing more um, and, and what, uh, what was the process in terms of the big band, the non-ed? I know both of those are now fully working ensembles and you're recording regularly now, but uh, what was that like starting those? Well, starting, uh, I, I started my first band in Los Angeles. Um, I think for me that maybe the primary motivation was um, kind of looking ahead at my, you know, I just started my career and I was realizing I'm getting called for these gigs and some of them I, I really love and some of them I really don't like at all. And the the thought of not having control of what I was doing, any control, just being at the whim of whoever called, um, kind of freaked me out mm -hmm. a little bit. And uh, I, I, I mean, ultimately I started writing because I love music. You know, I wanted to create music. I wanted to create something. Um, and I love just sitting down and creating things. I always have. But um, there was also another motivation of taking a little more control of my own career where I could sure. create more opportunities for myself and, and kind of cur curate essentially my own career in a way, ideally. I mean, it's obviously easier said than done, but at least, you, t you know, by, by starting my own band and writing my own music, I could have control of what I was playing and who I was playing with. And um, it... it uh, the, the 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 benefits from that too, I think. For, by and and I have students come back to me all the time. I you know I've been teaching now for many years, and I've been NY, NYU for uh, seven years. But I, I've been teaching for much longer than that, long enough where students are now coming back and telling mm -hmm. me what what it is maybe that I've given them some advice that um, has has really proven to be helpful to them. And one thing they, they a lot of them always say is you know that I, I would tell them. Um, if you know you can create a lot of great opportunities for yourself as a musician, if you just make stuff, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, of mm -hmm. your own, and I think that that's proven to be helpful to especially in this day and age, yeah. because the infrastructure for just graduating or whatever, getting yourself on the scene, and then just being swept up on this touring gig, it's all it's done. It's not it's not happening anymore. You know, I mean, it, perhaps it is, and. In certain circles, but um, it's more now. What what are you creating, and what you're creating can can really bring in opportunities for you, either as as a sideman or as a, as a writer or as a, in whatever or as a trombone player, of course. But if you're just kind of sitting around and not necessarily doing anything or being proactive about creating things. It's going to be a long road for you, mm -hmm. you know, I think as a, as a musician, particularly now. But I think it, in a way that's always been the case. And when I first started writing, this was pre, I mean, I had just gotten my first Yahoo account. I mean, I'm a, I'm sort of a child of, of the, I, I, I've lived in the pre and post internet world, you know, so, um, you know, and I was in college when it started, which is another, I think another thing, uh, that's a very formative time for, for, for us. And it was all so new. Um, but when I was, uh, you know, when I was in, in school, I was still of the kind of the older mentality where I was, you know, I'm driving down Santa Monica Boulevard, just looking for little cafes that look like they may want to have music, mm -hmm. walking into <laughs> them, asking them, like, would you be interested in a quartet? You know, yeah. that kind of thing. I, I mean, <laughs> it just seems crazy to me now, but 
That's what I mean. I didn't know what else to well, do. Was, yeah, I mean that was that was what you, you would do. That you couldn't surf enough. around like yeah. the web and like yeah. oh that looks cool. It was yeah. just like you just had to get out in your car and just find <laughs> these places. <laughs> so you know, I, I think that that that's probably a huge motivation for me. And uh, you know, I will say one more thing about that about in terms of writing. I I love creating community around myself. You know. And I, I think you can do that when you write. I mean, you create opportunities for other musicians to play, which is important. Particularly if it's music that they find some joy in playing. I think that's, mm. that brings me so much pleasure to create these opportunities for people where they can have fun playing music. You know, perhaps like this is why we all started playing music, I hope. You know, the motivation should be I want to have fun playing this music. Mm -hmm. And when you, I think when you do it, when you invest a lot of time and thought into creating something meaningful and, and, and honest, you know, for me, that can project outward to other people. And that, that, you know, then you bring the best version of everybody around you out mm -hmm. uh, on stage. It's just a, you know, I just had these CD release concerts for my new record and I felt that it was very palpable on stage and it can certainly go in the other direction too, which is demoralizing. You try to create something and it just doesn't, maybe doesn't fly all the time uh, when you're playing live or whatever. And it just feels like, Oh man, what am I doing? But when it does work, it's like, I, I can't think of in terms of music, I can't think of a better uh, situation to put yourself in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a very strong case to be made for people to check out writing because you can, I mean, it's beneficial on musical levels, of course, but it can also create these communities. I, and I think community is important in this music. This is jazz is a community music. It's a communal music. It's not a music that's created by yourself in a little room. Um, it's just not how it's always been a communal music, at least at its best. It, it mm -hmm. should be created together. And, and um, so whenever you can create that, I think it's a good thing. Mm hmm. Yeah, well said. I, I was sorry to miss it. We were, Kent and I uh, were in France last week, but I know you had your uh, CD release. And uh, I have to say, I was looking at some of the videos of the recording from uh, um, uh, the, new, the new CD. I, I couldn't agree with you more. You, I can sense the joy that that entire band has. You know, I mean, everybody, the music is so wonderfully done on every level but uh it was just great to see how much uh, the band just is inspired to play that music uh you know obviously your brother's plays sounds so great playing yeah. and having that's so that's a special dynamic but uh you know the history you have with all the people in that band it's a very very cool thing talk to us just a little bit about it if you will uh again the name of the cd is jigsaw just coming out now and um you know you were nominated for a grammy for your last cd and uh for one of the compositions and i'm sure that's going to be the case uh, with this project as well. But uh, maybe talk a little bit about your thought behind it, how it came to pass and picking players. And also, if not to make the question too wide, but what's your process when you sit down to, to write a piece of music? Are you thinking, I'm going to come up with a melody, I'm going to come up with a harmonic structure, have a rhythmic idea? Um, just kind of curious, picking your brain is how you approach things as a composer as well. Well, that's a, uh, yeah, that is a... That's a big question. I mean, I think my process has changed over the years, and, and it's certainly, um, I'd like to think it's gotten better. <laughs> you know? I think one thing I've learned, uh, having, now having done it, and, and have, knowing the, the tunes that sort of hold up for me over the years that I still like to play, that I've written a long time ago, so certainly most of them 
don't hold up. <laughs> and I often, I often ask myself, why do these hold up? And then I also ask myself, you know, I think about standards like Body and Soul and all the things you are. Why are we still playing these songs? Like, these songs were written in the 20s and 30s. So one thing I, I think about, uh, you know, for any composition is why, why am I still playing this? Um, in terms of process, one thing I've found is that if I'm, if I'm creating or generating an idea on um, sort of a tool that I'm comfortable on, like the trombone, I tend to create better music mm. for, for okay. myself. So I think the first compositions that I wrote um, when I was just starting dabbling with it, because uh, I'm, I'm fairly untrained in terms of writing. I mean, I, I figured a lot of things out by myself. So there was obviously a, just a huge amount of trial and error. I, I wrote a lot of initial compositions on piano, and I a lot of those tunes, I, I mean, harmonically, they're, they're kind of cool, I suppose, but I don't return to them hmm. because I, I think that if you're not creating a really compelling melody first, um, it, it uh, I mean, to me, a good melody will, um, will create great rhythm and harmony. You know, it'll just be, it'll, harmony and, and, and rhythm will be a byproduct of a good melody. Hmm. So lately, I, I did a record uh, prior to Jigsaw that was called Roots and Transitions. And um, there were a number of reasons why I, I chose the trombone to write, but one of them was I had just had a son. I had just won a grant. The grant stipulated that I, I uh, write this hour-long piece of multi-movement piece of music in, a, in uh, just a few months. And of course, I procrastinated a little bit because he was born and we we're just like, I, you know, a new dad. <laughs> I don't know what the hell I'm doing, you know. <laughs> I, uh, and then now I've got three months to go. I'm like, oh, great, you know. <laughs> so I just I sat down with my horn because I had to play. Mm -hmm. You know, as we know, it's, it's an unforgiving instrument. And I didn't have time to divide between this writing and this playing. So I had to just this. I had to practice compositionally, basically. So I would sit down with my horn and, um, and just start to basically practice more compositionally and come up with little ideas and melodies. And, and it was really hard at first, but because the trombone is a limiting instrument, I mean, it's, it's a limited range. Um, it doesn't play chords, you know? I mean, you can arpeggiate, of course, but there's a lot of reasons why it's easier to write something on piano. You can very quickly dress up a mediocre melody with attractive harmony and, and, and convince yourself that it's cool. It's like, <laughs> oh yeah, this is great, man, you know? It's, no, it's not. I mean, it's like the whole, you know, polishing the turd syndrome. <laughs> It's like if the melody isn't strong, then you, uh, well, basically on the trombone, if it, you know, it's very revealing when something's not, when a melody's not, not working or not. So I generated all these linear melodies and, and, and tried to build in a lot of rhythmic um, propulsion into the, into the melodies. And I just found that by doing that record, by, by carrying through with that process on the trombone, it created music that I really feel extraordinarily proud of and, mm. and, and, uh, and a strong connection with every track. Mm -hmm. um, so that also speaks to the process of writing, not on the computer, 
which is another another big pitfall, I think. Um, I think it works for some people, but I think that whenever I've tried to write something on the computer, it never really works out. Hmm. And I've found that for some reason, I mean, everything ends up on the computer for sure after I've gotten enough on, on paper that I'm, I'm happy with. But I found for myself that subconsciously the computer is writing a lot of music for me. I don't even realize it, but like if I do, if I write an AABA tune or something on the computer and then I, you know, I'm like, oh, this is sort of copy and paste, you know, <laughs> the first day to the last day. It begs the question, did I really write that last day, you know, mm -hmm. or did the computer write it? Mm. I mean, by actually sitting down and writing the last day, even if your intention is to copy the first day, you're writing each note, and then you'll more more often than not get to a point where like, well, man, actually, you know, this probably a little variation here would be cool from the first day. Maybe I'll I'll start this on the end of four instead of four this time, and little little things start to change. And um, uh, I think that that's there, there's a huge amount of um, discovery that was made in, in that regard. You know, I, I'm, I think the computer is a really important tool for writing, but I also think it, it, it's, it can inform musical choices, particularly with the MIDI playback function, that, that uh, it can inform musical choices that you're not necessarily hearing or connecting with. Um, and that, that, that brings up a whole other Pandora's box of things, which is writing things that aren't playable, um, asking the impossible of the musicians because, well, the MIDI can do it. Why can't you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I like to, you know, it's my personal style, but I like to kind of stay analog for as long as possible. Even record things into my phone, little ideas that I like and revisit them. Hmm. And then when I have something that I'm really feeling good about, something that, that really dances on the trombone, um, then I, then I move it into the computer because I, I, there's a point where I just can't execute it anywhere anymore sure, um, where yeah. I, can, I can hear it. So move it there and then I take it, take it from there. Hmm. Wow, that's a really, uh, thank you for sharing all that. That's really uh, cool in getting your insight. In, uh, and uh, and uh, we, had, uh, we had a guest on the show a couple months ago, Eric E. Wazen, the great composer, oh, yeah. and his line was flatter the instruments. Uh, and in terms of just what you just said, you know, not asking the impossible from from instruments, and in checking out your music, I think you've you're a master at that. Like it just oh, sounds you. like the, the you know that's probably why there's so much joy in the player's face when they, when you see them playing because they're they're playing something that's it's it's challenging for sure. You know, there's no question about that. But it's also it's like it's fair. You know, it's like yeah. the, there's a reward for 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 rising up to that level. But you're not asking for the you know not expecting to get a grand slam home run every time you come to the plate. Yeah, know, so. and I, I, want, I, just, I do want to add one thing to this yeah. thought, which is something that I learned when I, I read a, from a Nelson Riddle book, who, who's one of my all-time heroes. Sure. Yeah. Um, he, he was a trombone player and, you know, obviously moved into arranging. He talks about the trombone and how it informs his musical choices in terms of you can feel the connection between the notes on a trombone on a very visceral level I mean like if you play a minor six or something you and you 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 know an A to an F or something you just feel there's a you can feel that connection between those notes um, and it either feels good or it doesn't um, and I think that puts trombonists maybe at a slight advantage in terms of writing because not only are we literally in the middle of the band 
hearing this and, and, and really existing in a world of counterpoint because often what we're playing is not the primary melody. It's, it's something um, that is a, a, a counterpoint idea to something more, more sort of in the forefront. But it's also, um, you know, we're, we're also dealing with material that, you know, very easily could be just a bunch of whole notes. I think when the trombone section, when we're playing something that, um, a, a, like a really thoughtful melody that is, you know, really j brings us joy to play or whatever, that filters outward, you know, mm -hmm. in the band. Mm -hmm. And when you, when writers or whatever are considering um, those melodic choices in the middle of the band, not just the exterior parts of the band, when they're considering, and trombonists, are, again, are hypersensitive to this because I personally, I just get really bored when I'm playing a part where I'm, I, all this, there's all this material going on above us and then it's just like, duh, duh. Get me out of here. But if it's, you know, and this is Nelson Riddle, Duke Ellington, I mean, Count Basie, those parts, Okay, okay, maybe they're not like for in the forefront, but they're so much fun to play mm -hmm. on a rhythmic level, on a melodic level. Um, you feel like a drummer, you feel like a you know a trombonist, you feel like a singer sometimes. Just like this, they're very lyrical parts. Um, that joy, I think, like when when you know you know it when a trombone section is just feeling it, like it's it's just like man, this feels great, <laughs> and that just that just amplifies out. So. I think that uh, I always think about that Nelson Riddle thought of where he, was, he refers to the trombone as this sort of like this instrument where you feel the musical connection between the notes and how that can inform your writing and compositional decisions and how, if it, again, if it feels good on a trombone, it's probably going to feel great on any instrument, particularly horn, because the trombone is like there's certain things that are playable that they just feel really satisfying. And I, I do think that that filters through all the instruments of the band. Mm -hmm. Wow, that was, uh, that's tremendous advice, especially for uh, the, those of you interested in composition and arranging and uh, uh, great stuff. I totally agree with you. There's so many uh, really fine writers who play trombone and uh, Nelson, Johnny Mandel, then you can shift over to the modern era, John yeah. Fedchuk, you know, various folks, you know, and, uh, it's, it's Marshall kind jokes, of unbelievable. Uh, you know, Ryan Keberly, it's yeah. like, wow, it's amazing. You know, I mean, yeah. the, the, I'm leaving out tons right now, so I feel oh, bad. But, I mean, the but list is just enormous. It's tremendous. Um, Alan, your your success as a as a creative musician and as a band leader is is it's really fun to see uh, the directions you're going and what you're contributing to the music. It's really a Fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your work as a sideman. It's equally as impressive. You've, your discography is uh, a who's who of uh, creative music and of popular music. Um, I'm just going to throw out a few names at you and just give me mm -hmm. a quick response as to what you may have gotten from them. Sometimes we play on projects, and <clears throat> many of you have experienced it as well. You play on a project, the artist may or may not be there. Um, sometimes that can be a good thing. Sometimes it's yeah. uh, when they're there, it's like an amazing experience, and you have more of an uh, impactful experience. But uh, but anyway, uh, throw out some names that you. I just picked a few. There's so many on your uh, resume. But uh, starting with uh, Esperanza Spalding. So Esperanza became a very good friend. So uh, I, the way I met her was through my wife. My wife is a cellist, and she played on Esperanza's um, Chamber Music Society 
which is the record that she made prior to Radio Music Society. Um, and through my wife, I met I met Esperanza, and she hired me to to play in her Radio Music Society. And I got to know her really well because we were actually on the same bus, and she knew I I love to write as well as play, of course. And and um, we would we would stay up late on the bus talking about composers and she was working actually a lot with Wayne Shorter at the time who was mm -hmm. one of my all-time heroes and she would bring scores like onto the bus she you know she would be out there working with him and these orchestral scores of Wayne's the the, the handwritten scores mm. and uh we shared a, a big passion for for Wayne of course and and a lot of other people but she was just um Esperanza I mean it's 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 hard to to even begin with her because she's such she's this larger than life personality. She has so much joy, and I think what what I really admire about her is her integrity. I mean, she has a there's I think a lot of pressure for her to you know basically I think do a lot of things she doesn't want to do. Mm -hmm. People you know they see someone really famous like that and they get dollar signs in their eyes and like. Can you do this project? Because I think it'll make us a lot of money. She's like, I think there's probably, I, I would imagine maybe some, conf she, she feels very conflicted about that. What I love about her is we would do these concerts and she would just do her thing and it would get pretty abstract on stage. Wow. She would absolutely embrace that. I mean, and it would be a huge haul. <laughs> and we would start taking it to some other places and um, she would, instead of trying to veer it back into the, into the accessible realm, she she would get more excited and That's like good. actually push us there, you uh -huh. know, like that that kind of Miles Davis thing. So yeah, Esperanza is uh, I I have an, the utmost respect for her as a musician and what she can do as a vocalist and a bassist, but also as a human being. Just a beautiful person, wow. absolutely very creative. Awesome. Well, another beautiful person, an amazing musician, one of my favorite musicians in New York, Ted Nash. Obviously, his dad, an iconic figure in the world of trombone, that's for sure. But, yeah. but Ted, in his own right, one of one of the best musicians I've I've ever worked with. But, and I know you played on one of his big band uh, CDs. Yeah, was that, uh, Chakra. Yeah, yeah, the Chakra Suite. Mm -hmm. But I met Ted through playing uh, Broadway. Um, okay. I'd met him on on a chorus line initially. I think that was the first show I met him on. I was subbing on chorus line. I think as with a lot of people, yourself included, um, a lot of my heroes I met sometimes in these places where I would not expect it. And a lot of my big heroes I met playing uh, in Broadway pit orchestras. And um, it's just amazing. It's like I would, I would be playing with these, with these guys. Like, <laughs> wow. We're, I mean, that's... You know, that's Ted Nash, that's, you know, that's Walt Weisskopf, that's, you know, right. Mike Davis. It's like, what? It's Scott Wenholt. I mean, it was, I mean, Broadway for me, like, particularly, I was doing it basically solid for eight years and started doing my own shows. And, and, and uh, to me, I, I talked about community a little bit earlier. To me, that was a great way for me to meet a lot of the community that I really came to New York to meet. Um, and I got to play with with um, these these guys, and it was it was a way for me to also make that initial connection, so that when I created something that I wanted to, or or you know whatever, if I had opportunities to play or or uh, write something, I'd be able to um, to hopefully play with them again. Mm -hmm. So um, 
with Ted, got a little off course there, but with Ted, I, I, I met on a chorus line and we sort of hit it off. I mean, I told him I'm a big fan of his dad's and, um, I don't know. I, I, I felt a real connection with Ted being, he was from the West coast and, mm -hmm. and, uh, I think we see eye to eye on a lot of things musically. Um, and working with him in his big band, I mean, I just love, I, I mean, the thing I loved about that particular project is just the way he writes um, this, these vibrant, sw like, swinging melodies with, I mean, it's so hard to do that. Because a, a lot of my students are like, oh, I'm going to write a tune, like, with, with functional changes, you know, that swings. Mm -hmm. And then they bring it in, it's like, it's just not happening, you know? <laughs> I mean, Ted is like, you know, he's he's from that era. I mean, not only from that era, his dad was like, he played with all the greats, Mancini, you know, you name it. Yeah. And uh, he, I felt a lot of that history in, in Ted's own writing. But then also like this, I, I, I felt really connected to it because he has this contemporary um, uh, tilt to it as well. And the way he blends those two things to me is very Ted. It's very honest. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he picks up any acts and just shreds, you know, mm -hmm. makes so much music on flute, saxophone. It's like, man, what, 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 what can the guy can't do? I mean, like, he's <laughs> exactly. just like amazing. So, yeah. I love Ted. Yeah. Very cool. Um, this, I saw this video just last week, uh, and I was just blown away hearing this, uh, Miguel Zenon's big band of which you were uh, a part of, I think it was yeah. at Newport. And, uh, first of all, the trombone section when it's Tim Albright and Ryan Keberly and yourself, it doesn't get much better than that. But, uh, but the writing, blew my mind it was just like uh, anyway i was dying to ask you about that experience and uh different you know music than we're talking about previous but uh what was that uh well like yeah, for you i mean miguel you know he's puerto rican um the thing about his music that i love is is um that he blends these folk sort of folksy puerto rican beautiful puerto rican uh melodies with this really almost steve coleman-esque um rhythmic cycle oriented things and very polyrhythmic uh, rhythmic undercurrents underneath these these beautifully soaring lyrical melodies, and uh, the thing that I, I remember the most about Miguel's band is the first rehearsal because, you know, as with most bands, they send you the music and you check it out a little bit. They send you the PDFs and oh, this is this, is, this is, looks no problem, you know. Like <laughs> so, I looked at it and get to the first rehearsal and I mean. I, I wouldn't, this is not an understanding, it was like maybe within three or four bars, it was like, I'm lost. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason is, he, in, in a lot of his charts, he, write, he wrote it in one meter, but it felt like in another meter. Like, it felt like it was in five, but it was actually in four, or what you're seeing isn't corresponding with, with what you're hearing, and it's like, what is going on, you know? Mm -hmm. It was amazing watching him conduct when he wasn't playing, conducting the band. You, you exactly get the sense. Oh, I, I was completely. I was thinking the exact thing. If I was playing this, I'd be lost right now. Like, what is happening? But oh, I, it's just. Uh, it, it was a real wake-up call for me. Yeah. Um, because, and, and I talk about this. I talk about specific experience with students. Like, ne you know, never. I mean, always do your homework, and then when you think you're done doing your homework, <laughs> review. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Because with with Miguel, um, that his his rhythmic thing is so deep, and then of course he hears. If you're just a fraction of a second later, early on something, he's just like he's going like, 
He just he hears it. So you you need to be really on point mm -hmm. with his stuff. And and you know I I practiced a lot on on just feeling those polyrhythms and and trying to really. I mean he's dancing to the whole thing. He's just literally he's just like moving with it like it's nothing. Yeah, yeah, you, you know, could tell he certainly feels that. It's the beauty of New York, you know. It's like. We get to swim. I mean, jazz encompasses so much now. Where we get to swim in this um, this kind of melting pot of musical influences, and with that particular project, it was like Puerto Rico, Afro. You know, it was like these Afro-Cuban folkloric, you know, things melding with the jazz big band tradition. Steve Reich kind of thrown in there, yeah, but then right, also right. some like, you know, some Ellington. I mean, very unique and um, and compelling. And I, and I think that's a that's a very particular to New York thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, very cool. And lastly, the last artist I wanted to do, uh, as, as many of you may know about Alan's uh, career, he's also uh, very in demand in the indie rock world. And uh, I was wondering about your uh, experience with Sufjan Stevens. I thought... Uh, interesting artist too for trombone players to get to work with and I know yeah. I know there's been a few but not many so uh, your impressions uh. well he um, I actually knew him he, we lived in the same neighborhood in Brooklyn okay. for a while he had a um, so I'd see him I'd see him around you know here and there but I was also uh, kind of in this little scene of trombone players that were in this indie rock world so so me and a guy named dave nelson and uh tim albright we we all first for one thing we we lived in the same neighborhood and i mean i've known tim i've known since i was 14 so we're i, I would consider him one of my closest friends for mm. sure um he's i've known him since my first jazz camp you know, we were in the Allstate band together in california it's like from every step of the way we were on the road with Fosse for a while i mean it was like um so we uh, we had this like we would always hang together and we just got sort of swept up in this and Ben Lands he was the other guy he was he's he's still he's with the National right now the mm -hmm. indie rock band um, so we would all um, do these indie rock sessions which a lot of them were happening in the studio in Ditmas Park where we were living but then Sufjan had a studio near uh, the East River and uh, kind of the, the uh, I guess the Brooklyn, what is that, Brooklyn Heights or area or whatever. And uh, he would he would write these just amazing compositions that, and he just heard trombone all over them. So we would go in for these epic sessions. I mean, like six hours, eight hours, just just like page after page. I want to do this. And like, bah, bah, you know, <laughs> just pounding, pounding, pounding for forever. So he'd get way more than he needed. He was kind of a maximalist in terms of the recording process. He would just get all this material to work with and then he would um, he would uh, eventually pare it down to what he needed because mm -hmm. um, you know, we'd hear the finished product and it would be like okay there's there's a fair amount of trauma but not like it was. Yeah right. But, well, uh, yeah I, I really like him because he would he would marry again marry all these different influences i mean he did baroque music and his stuff and that's minimalist awesome. classical music and this and that he's he's amazing yeah that's so cool great to see a uh, new contemporary artist that dig trombone you can't, uh, I can't know. argue with that you know? i know <laughs> let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your work at nyu and i know you've taught at a, a variety of places uh 
as a, as a faculty member. Also, of course, you're very active as a guest artist uh, around the world, really. Um, but, but talk a little bit about, you've been so generous uh, sharing your teaching and ideas. It was, we're t it's like we're taking a lesson as we, as we have the interview. It's great. But, uh, but uh, a little, you know, what's going on at the program over there? I know you've got Alex Sipiagin and lots of wonderful things happening there. So tell us about NYU. Yeah, well, they have, they've got me doing a lot of things. I mean, they're certainly <laughs> stretching my skill set to, to, <laughs> to, to the limits. I teach um, privately uh, a combination of trombone students and, and, and composition students. And this semester I have 13 students, which is a lot. I mean, that's... Wow. Yeah, that's, that is that's a lot. lot. Yeah. It's, it's cool, though. I mean, I just got to stay organized. <laughs> so, uh, and usually I have, you know, it's... it's seeming levels off around 10 or so so it's a good load and then i i run two ensembles i run a, a non-net ensemble that they kind of allowed me to design mm -hmm. since i had a lot of these charts mm -hmm. and uh, a smaller group ensemble which this semester is just a quartet um which i'm i'm playing in it but it's guitar piano bass and drums and then um i have uh, i teach a composition arranging class a graduate level class in the fall and uh an undergraduate uh, level improv class in the spring. So the nice thing about all that stuff is that I get to know just about every student in the program. Yeah. One way, at one point or another, they're filtering through either my my lesson studio or my classes. So um, I mean, I love it. I get a chance to connect with the students. Um, over the years, I've I feel like I've gotten better at it. You know, at teaching. I think mm. teaching is is it's one of those things where you know I, I think after you've done it for a while you start to realize what's working what's not working what's sticking what people are really taking away uh and what they're not i mean of course every student is different and and uh some students learn in different ways and of course at nyu it's very international so i've got the language thing sometimes to deal with but i don't know in general um it's been a great experience for me just mm. just uh, working with a huge variety of of students not only uh you know in terms of ethnic diversity but but uh, age diversity too mm -hmm. with a mm -hmm. master's program you get you know you get some i get i have a fair amount of students that are older than i am a lot that are younger you know some people that are my age it's just it's cool but yeah. i you know i i, th I I'm constantly thinking about how I can make it better. <laughs> you know, you've said, yeah, I can tell just from talking to you today that you are a, would be a great person to, to study with because you just have like a very clear and, and uh, thoughtful way of presenting ideas. It's great. And uh, I'll take some lessons from you. It would be great. I, that's what I should do at the end of this. But uh, it maybe, and you know, you've, a lot of the stuff that you've uh, talked about is just wonderful advice. But what do you see for... The young generation of, of let's just say musicians you know i mean we could say jazz musicians but let's just broaden it out i know you know for my generation it was the you know the tail end of a lot of studio work and whatnot that's exists in some element like we're talking about with the indie rock thing and whatnot those things come up but it's not like you can just be a studio musician right. anymore you have to right. be more doing everything what's your Outlook, and I know I've spoken to some uh, um, Darius Christian Jones. I can't remember if he goes by Christian Darius or Darius Christian, but I, we did a gig together. Lo he's like your biggest fan. He just said <laughs> yeah. how much uh, what he got out of you was uh, amazing. But here's a young man playing trombone, having success. He's got the right 
combination of elements to me just in that one meeting with him. But what do you present to your students and then how do you guide them in terms of, I want to make a living as a musician? You know, one thing I try to instill in them, and particularly at the college level, because there's a lot of things, there's a lot of baggage, I think, that students have. I mean, for one thing, they're dealing with being away from home, they're dealing with being out of their country, whatever. I try to, you know, ultimately, what I try to try to get them to believe is, 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 that, is that they need to be themselves mm. in the end. You know, when they get out of school, I, I want them to believe also in themselves because oftentimes you know you mentioned Darius I mean in jazz school there sometimes uh, to me I, I find this conflict with some students they want to do some things that aren't necessarily jazzy you know like mm -hmm. Darius wanted to sing and he wanted to write his own songs that were not necessarily jazz oriented and I get a, a number of students like that and uh, instead of discouraging it in 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 um, in light of like we have to do this assignment or you have to do all these drop two voicings and mm -hmm. you can't you know you have to tamp down all this other stuff that you really want to be doing i mean obviously you need to teach them the fundamentals and that universally will never change no matter what area you're in every student has to have sound fundamentals i mean mm -hmm. you can't avoid that you can't go out there and not be able to play in tune in time so forth so that's that's just like yeah. that's non-negotiable with a student if they're not going to work on fundamentals then Good luck to you. Yes, yeah, you know, <laughs> but but I but I also really encourage people if they if they're really because again everyone's different and some people have a really solid idea and passion of what they want to be doing their ideal kind of like picture of what their career is. I try to really support that and encourage it in in the context of our lessons or whatever we're doing in our class. I mean, obviously you can't get to everything, but I um, I do try to help them believe in what they they want to be doing instead of discourage it and mm -hmm. I, you know I think that in some cases if if they do have a teacher that maybe says well that you know that, that doesn't swing or something so forget about that you don't just forget about that don't do that if you're really feeling that well what why, why th then that that creates um, some psychological issues for I think for a student that, that mm -hmm. maybe takes a while even after they graduate to, to reconcile mm -hmm. So that's my philosophy anyway. I mean, I, I do, I do, I'm, I'm strict in terms of like, you know, making sure they're doing the work and um, building the tools they need to be successful musicians. I mean, just again, like there are certain fundamental things when we talk about basketball, I mean, you see Steph Curry out there doing his routine every pregame warm-up it's like there's a reason he's hitting 91 percent of his free throws right, right. it's not just because he grew up that way i mean yeah. yes he has natural gifts but he puts the work in yeah you know that's a 10-foot shot that's <laughs> you have to just do over and over and over and the same is true with trombone if you're not doing your long tones flexibility whatnot um it's not gonna happen yeah yeah. So, um, you know, with, with students, you're, you're dealing with all these different people coming in, you know, hour after hour. So you're shifting gears a lot, but, you know, there are, there are certainly universal things. But I, I think that, that for the most part, I try to, you know, I try to help them also achieve their own personal goals mm -hmm. whenever possible. And, of course, 
I'd be honest with them. You know, I try to be really honest with them. It's overwhelming for them sometimes when they're getting close to graduating. Like, what am I going to do now? Yeah. Um, I have, of course, I try to help them find opportunities, but that's where I always go back to be proactive. Mm-hmm. You basically live in a time that, and you're, you're, you're entering the scene at a time where there's almost unlimited outlets for you to get your stuff out there. Sure, it's a crowded field of mm-hmm. content, but you can you don't have to find a record label anymore. I mean, yeah. to to disperse your music, you can just you can, and also you don't even have to play out anywhere to have an audience. I mean, you could we could be sitting here in the in a room, play a tune with a band, and you could have an audience potentially of millions. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's crazy, but that's the reality. And I think it, it, that uh, it's it's there are opportunities there. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good, really healthy way to look at it. Because especially for guys at my age, it's always, oh wow, man, you, you missed. You know, should have been here when you know. <laughs> right, right. Of course. But uh, yeah. but of course, everybody was saying that when I was twenty one years old, and you know, when you were twenty one years old. So they're always I, yeah. I feel like they're always going to say that. But know? I think that's a great. That's a, such a great point. You know, you, you have unlimited opportunities. You know, not to say that it's easy, and not to say, that, like you said, not it is a crowded field, but but still, um, and you're living proof of it. I mean, you're creating this amazing stuff through your big band and on that. Alan, thank you so much for coming up today. As we wind down, I want to uh, make sure everybody gets a chance to see the CD. This is uh, Jigsaw, the Alan Ferber Big Band. And uh, I know you're heading out to L.A., right, to do some yeah. um, CD release I am. Um, uh, uh, events out there. What else is uh, what's on the docket for the next uh, couple of years, or are you just thinking right now about uh, the Jigsaw uh, gigs? No, definitely not. I, I, uh, I, I do have... Some things in LA. I'm, I'm also guesting at Stanford University next month, oh, playing nice. a lot of that music. Okay. Uh, I'm going to be a guest conductor with the Allstate band, one of the Allstate bands in in New York, uh, where I mean we'll be playing traditional things, uh, but they they did they did say they'd love to play a couple of my charts. We'll play with with some high school kids, which will be fun. Um, in addition to that, I've been I've been actually busy this year with a various other projects. Um, not of my own, but I, I, and I remember asking about this. Um, I did a, a project with a singer in L.A., Shoshana mm-hmm. Bean. It was more of a, more of a, it was a big band project, but not necessarily a jazz project. So it was like a Rihanna tune, Ned Sheeran tune, Aretha stuff, uh, cool. all yeah. over the map. We recorded it in August with a great L.A. big band. And that should be coming out, I'm guessing... I'm not sure later mm-hmm. later next year, mm-hmm. but that that was a big. I felt like I did two records this year because that was just an enormous amount of work mm. doing all the arranging for that. Mm-hmm. So that's obviously on my mind. I did a couple of things for the Brussels Jazz Orchestra that is probably going to be coming out. So some Joni Mitchell charts cool. that I'm also excited about. So you know, a lot of a lot of things in the in the works. I I'm excited about. Yeah, you know. Well, great stuff and uh, continued success. Thanks so much for. Uh, coming up to new city to see us today and, uh, and uh, it's, uh, as always inspiring to uh, to follow your career and uh, both from uh, composing and uh, and as a player so thanks alan really appreciate Thank you it so much mike and uh, we it. will see all of you next time on bone to pick <laughs>